the word says you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same I want to change one word you see the depths of my sin you see the depths of my filth you see the depths of my mess and you love me the same what a God what a God what a God ah nothing everything Hebrew says is laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do it's all out there he sees every ugly thought he sees every nasty motivation he sees every sin every place that you try to hide from everyone else he's seen every last little bit and he says I love you just the same the blood of my son the Lord Jesus Christ has covered you you're righteous you're holy you're mine ah what a wonderful thing to be a child of the living God ah praise the Lord Praise the Lord. It is good to be in God's house. We'll probably have the 1215 crowd coming in in a few minutes. Those who forgot about the clocks. Amen. Amen. And you know, as you get older, like losing an hour is like even worse. You know, it's like, oh man, another hour. That's gone. But uh, days and weeks and months seem to go by a little faster as you get a little older. Can I get an amen from the old heads? Yes. Amen. Old heads in the house. Proud to be old heads, too. Amen. Right, Brother Mobley? Amen. Come on now. Come on. It's all right. It's good. Uh, I realized that I did not introduce myself in the last service like we were in time, and I'm like, let's hurry up. Let's hurry up. So I am Larry Smith. I am one of the pastors on staff here at Epiphany. I am uh, the light-skinnedest one of all the pastors. I'm light-skinnedest, and the the, the Lord is good. Um, My wife is with me as well. uh, My wife, Harriet, will be getting the Congressional Medal of Honor on Tuesday. Um, Some of y'all are saying, no, she's not. Well, not exactly, but... She will have been married to me for 25 years on Tuesday. She probably would tell you I should get the Congressional Medal of Honor. I thank the Lord for her and uh, and that celebration. Uh, We're going to move into the Word of God. Uh, The book of Habakkuk is what we're going to look at today. Let me pray. And then we'll go to the word. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of coming together as your people. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to celebrate what a mighty God we serve. To celebrate your grace and the depth of your love for undeserving ones such as us. God, we pray that your word would find us today. Lord, we pray that we would dig out whatever's in our ears that would keep us from hearing what you would want to say to us today, and that above all, the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up and glorified in this place. Have your way. We give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Habakkuk, which is the fifth to the last book in the Old Testament, probably not one that you've heard tons of messages on, If it helps at all, in my Bible, it's page 718. That probably is not going to help you. But it's uh, a a great, great 
uh, book that, that, that deals with weighty issues. Um, it's one of the, the minor prophets. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. They're called minor prophets, not because their message is minor, but because the books are shorter. You have major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have these, these prophets who wrote uh, smaller books inspired by God, the Word of God, through the prop, prophet Habakkuk. Um, the name, uh, just give you a title for the message today, From Chaos to Confidence. And the subheading is Sure Footing in Slippery Places. From Chaos to Confidence, Sure Footing in Slippery Places. We're going to kind of go through the whole book. It's only three chapters. We're not going to even try to read every verse, but we're going to kind of look at the breadth of this book and, and what it would be saying to us as God's church even today. I preached on Habakkuk one other time in my life, and it was, I was trying to figure out exactly how long ago, but 13 or 14 years ago, um, and I had received a call, I think it was on a Thursday night, uh, asking me if I could preach for a funeral that was to be on Friday morning. I don't know what happened. They were looking for somebody, uh, some pastor, somebody who could, who could share a word. And so when they asked me, and it was a relative of a member of the church uh, that we were at at the time, I said, sure, I'll do that. Can you tell me a little bit about the situation? And they began to tell me uh, more about this funeral and about the young lady. She was 28 years old who uh, we were doing the funeral for the families that next day. She was 28. She had five children. Um, she had been estranged from her husband. Um, she had a lifelong dream of being a policewoman. And she had just graduated from the police academy. She had just been issued the gun that you get when you graduate from the police academy. The night that she died, her estranged husband broke into the home. She had changed the locks, but he broke into it. Um, as the family members told me, he tortured her for hours, tied her up and tortured her for hours, beat her. And then he took the gun that she had, that had been the culmination of her dream to be a police officer, took that gun and shot her and killed her. The kids were in the house. And so this was the funeral that I had to preach uh, the next day. Two families grieving. Two families um, fighting as well about these children. Two, two families who, I know they had members who were believers and other members who weren't, but those who were believers couldn't make any sense out of why, why, why God, why would you allow this? This is beyond what, what we could imagine. And, and I, I share that simply because in many ways 
with what Habakkuk is sharing in this short book is similar in that he's dealing with issues in looking all around and about him and asking the question, why? Why, God? Let's, let's read the first few verses of this book, starting at verse 1, chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long? Shall I cry out for help and you will not hear or cry out or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted can you hear him pouring out his heart not understanding this this doesn't add up lord help me with this habakkuk's writing at the end of the 7th century probably sometime between uh, 610 bc and 600 bc And he knows the writings of the earlier prophets. And he knows the history of Israel. And he remembers the prophet Amos who prophesied about 150 years before and said to the Lord, let your justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The prayer of the prophet. And yet he says, there is no justice. There's, There's no righteousness going on in the land. God, help me. What's happening? Your justice is perverted everywhere I look. He remembers the words of the psalmist. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. But he says in verse 4, The law is paralyzed. The law has no effect. The law, the perfect law of God, he's probably memorized Psalm 119. All 176 verses, I think. Trying to remember how many verses. I'm just trying to memorize how many verses. He's got them all memorized. That extols the virtues of the word of God. Verse after verse. The law of God. And he says it's paralyzed. It can't do anything. God, I don't understand. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 for a moment. I want you to understand where Habakkuk is coming from, the background. Habakkuk is living in a time, and he lived as a contemporary of King Josiah, the last great, good, and godly king of Judah. Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old. <laughs> and the Bible says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a good king. During his reign, they rediscovered the law of God in the temple. And when it was read to him, the Bible says he rent his garments. He tore his garments. He bowed before God. And he began progressively 
to do what needed to be done to set the right worship of God up once again in Jerusalem and Judea. He tore down the high places that sacrificed to false gods. He reinstituted justice and righteousness in the land. And Habakkuk saw all of this. But in 610 B.C., when Josiah went out to war against Egypt, he was killed in battle. And this picks up in verse in chapter 36 of Second Chronicles and tells you a little bit of what happened. I'm going to skip around, but verse 1, the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute. So his son began to reign in his place, but the king of Egypt now had control, and so he made him a vassal, and he took him away. And it says in verse 4, And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name. He has power over who's going to sit as the king. And now I'm going to name him what I want to name him. We're not going to go into all the names, but he names him uh, Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Um. Verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations that he did, and what was found against him, behold, they're written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. Verse 9, Jehoiachin, the next king, was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You don't need a lot of time to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. A hundred days, and the only record we have on him is he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord is God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of God. Habakkuk is living in this time as king after king. After the, the godly king Josiah perverts justice. Worships false gods. Sets up idols. Dishonors God in every imaginable way. And in the midst of this, he's crying out. Violence. Verse 2 uses that word. I cry out violence. The word in Hebrew is Hamas. Terrorism. Terrorists. Violence. God, what's happening? And this book is laying out what theologians call a theodicy. The theodicy is a defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the persistent existence of evil. Job, we know, is a longer 
theodicy. How do we deal with this? It is a problem for us as believers. We say God is sovereign. And we say God is good. And yet what we see around us, we cannot simply say, Romans 8.28, you'll be all right. Are you going to say that? To children in Haiti right now who've lost their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and food and shelter and all that. Just Romans 8.28, you're fine, you're good, it's okay. It's all good. Romans 8.28 never says that all things are good. It says that in the almighty eternal plan of God, he, he is able by his divine providence to bring a good end to all things. But the things themselves are evil. What do you say to that family? What do you say to those kids of the woman that I described earlier for that funeral? So there's an issue. There's a deep problem of dealing with the goodness of God. And it's one that the scripture is replete with throughout scripture. I love Psalm 73. Great Psalm of David. He starts it by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps, he says, had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, as I began to look around me and see what was going on, much like Habakkuk, the righteous, Habakkuk says, are being surrounded by the wicked. And justice is perverted. David says in Psalm 73, I almost slipped because I saw this. I struggled with it. I have a few points for you today. Six in all. The first point is this. Growing faith begins with an honest struggle. Growing faith begins with an honest struggle. God's not afraid of you pouring out your reality to him. He's not afraid. He's not intimidated by the fact that you're going to get real. What I've noticed a lot of times is Christians are good at a lot of things, but sometimes they're not very good at being real. We've learned to wear a false face. We've learned to be two-faced in many ways. Um, but God is not intimidated by your struggle. And if you're going to grow in faith, it starts with an honest struggle. So Habakkuk lays out this complaint. And I just want to think, when he does that, that God's response will be, oh, son, let, let me just tell you, my, God's immediate response is going to be, Habakkuk, I love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to put a cold compress on your head. I'm going to get some of Miss Harriet's chicken soup. And, and, and I'm going to nurse you to health. I'm going to watch over you. It's going to, be, it's going to be okay. I'm there for you. But that's not God's immediate response. His immediate response is actually more troubling than what was already going on in Judah. Look at verse 5. God's response, the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Okay, now I'm waiting for something good. Give me something good. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Look at verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. You know, Babylon is modern-day Iraq, right? And he's saying, look, they're coming, and there are WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, that they're bringing with them. This time, the president didn't get it wrong. The UN didn't mess up. The, re, the, the intelligence report comes from the Lord himself, and he says they're coming with weapons of mass destruction, and they're coming with bad intentions. He says horses swifter than leopards. You can't keep up with them. More fierce, he says, than evening wolves. The evening wolf is a wolf that has been going out all day long and has come up empty on getting anything to eat. A wolf can be fierce, but he says this isn't just a wolf. This is an evening wolf. This is a hungry wolf. This is a starving wolf that has decided that if it moves, I not only eat it, but I'm going to kill it and eat it. He compares these people to the evening wolves. Verse 9 says, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. Your wall's not big enough, it's not thick enough. It can't stop us. They pile up earth and take it. They lay a city siege. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Mm. Lord, couldn't you have given me a different word? He's saying, I'm, I'm struggling here, God. I'm hurting here, God. I don't understand injustice that's going on. It doesn't line up with everything I've read about you, with what I experienced as Josiah was the king. It doesn't line up with your word, your character, everything I know. And God says, if you think it's bad now, it's about to get uglier. It's about to get worse. Now we're talking about something that happened 2,600, 2,700 years ago. But what about for you? What, what about for me right now? What's your struggle? What's your complaint? One thing I would ask, and, and, and from these words, I would say, Growing in, in, in faith begins with an honest struggle, struggling with God. Where do you take it? Take it to the Lord. He, he's, not, he's not the one who's going to give you a little band-aid and say it's okay. God is going to interact with you in honesty and in truth. He's not going to say, oh, just close your eyes, take, take one of these, and it'll be all better in the morning. God is a God of truth. He's a God of honesty. We've got to face some of you have faced this already in your lives. What some theologians call and what church historians call the dark night of the soul. Some of you have faced that. If you haven't, you will. 
If you belong to Christ, you will. And you may face it many times. The depth of struggle. Give it to God. Michael Ramsden is on staff with Rabbi Zacharias Ministries. And he shares these words. Maybe the reason we question God's moral character when bad things happen is that we live our lives largely independent of Him. In other words, we struggle to trust God in times of trouble because we don't really trust Him when things are going well. He says, maybe we struggle with suffering so much in the West because we're so comfortable most of the time that we don't need God. We do not rely on him on a daily basis, and so we do not really know him. When suffering comes along, therefore, it's not so much that it takes us away from God, but, it, but that it reveals to us that we have not really been close to God in the first place. Mm. That hurt you. That hurt me, brother. That hurts us. So many of our, so many of my complaints, when I think about them, are pathetic in some ways. I'm not going through what Habakkuk went through. I'm not going through what the family and the, the children of this lady I talked about going through. Some of you are, have gone through, maybe are going through uh, abuse and, and extremely hard circumstances right now. But my prayer would be, we draw near to God in that. We give it to God. Second point is this. Well, let me read a, read a verse. verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. I know we are moving around here, but chapter 2, verse 1. After Habakkuk responds to what the Lord says, again, I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 1 first. Um, after he responds to, to God's word, he complains again. He says, why? What's going on, Lord? I don't understand. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. He says, you who are, pure, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He used that word idly there in verse 13. He used the same word in verse 3. Why do you idly look at wrong? It's almighty God with his hands in his pockets. Evil's going on. Wickedness. Perversion of God's law. Evil ones swallowing up those more righteous than they. And he says, why are you idle, God? Why don't you do something about it, Lord? Verse 17, he says... <laughs> Speaking of the Babylonians, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, is there no end to this? Chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, look out to see what he will say to me. 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Second point is this. Maturity is measured by waiting. Maturity is measured by waiting. Your level of maturity is marked by how you handle delay. Want to know where you're at? How do you handle it when there's a delay? How do you handle it when you don't see? Many prophets in the Old Testament, time after time, it talks about prophets as watchmen. And watchmen were, were those who would get on the wall of the city. Most fortified cities had large walls that went all the way around the city. Maybe 12, 15 feet thick. Maybe 35 to 40 feet high. And at, at various points, they were buttressed all around by high towers. And the watchman was the one who would stand on the tower and watch out for an enemy army coming in. They had a critical job. But I would also guess, for the most part, a pretty boring job. The watchmen would wait, they would do their shift, they would do their eight hours on the wall, looking out. Most days, most weeks, most months, most years, they're just looking out. And there's no enemy coming. I was thinking of a job that I've never had but have thought of often. Um... A toll booth operator. And I always thought, man, that would, I wouldn't like that job. You know, I'm just sitting in a toll booth all day long. But at least as a toll booth operator, you've got people coming through. Hey, how you doing? There you go. Give me your money. <laughs> you have a little interaction with people, right? Anybody ever got the wrong change, less change than you're supposed to get at a toll booth? No? Anybody? I have. I hate that feeling. Yeah, Brother Reggie has. That's a bad feeling, man. I'm driving away, and it's like, where's my $5? He ripped me off. I'm not, I can't turn around. Ah. I remember I did that one time, and I was going down to Baltimore on the way back. Um, I told the person at the toll booth on the way back, they kind of ripped me off on the other side. They just looked at me like, yeah, right, too bad. You're not getting your money back. <laughs> bad feeling. But can you imagine being a toll booth operator on a road? with no cars, <laughs> nothing's coming. Habakkuk says, I'm going to take my post. I'm going to wait. And, 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 and with a sentry, with a watchman, they're in eight-hour shifts, three times a day. So after I do my eight hours, I go home with my family. I, I get something to eat. I relax. You know, and then I'm going to come back to the, the job 16 hours later. But Habakkuk, he's the prophet, and he says, I'm standing. He just doesn't say on a watch post. He says on my watch post. I'm standing at my watch post. I can't come down from it until I hear the word of the Lord. I, I'm not on the clock where I can just, you know, sign in and sign out. I've got to wait for God to give direction. That's a challenge for us. That's a challenge for me. Waiting for God to give direction. But he says, I, 
I'll take my stand. I'll wait. I've laid out all my hurt. I've laid out all my stuff. I've laid out my struggle. But now, Lord, I'll wait to hear. And look what God says. Verse 2. He says, and the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's saying, I've got a word for you. I've got, I've got a promise for you. And it's coming. The, the, the next point is this. God answers with a sure promise. It's a sure promise. And we're going to talk about what that is. But what does he say to the prophet? Write it out. Make it plain so that one who runs may read it. Some translations look at someone who's running past can read it. What he's saying is, blast it on the Pico building. Put it on every septa bus. On the back of the bus, on the side of the bus, on the top of the bus. Put it on the bottom of the bus just in case someone's looking up. He says, blast it everywhere. Put it in the sky. Make this vision plain. I want you to see. God does reply in his time. God does reply in his way. And when he, he lays out the vision, he says, I'm going to make this thing plain to you. And I want you to blast it from the rooftops. Blast it from the housetops. Blast it everywhere. God answers with a sure promise. But still, it looks like there's delay here. But look at verse 3. He says in the middle of that verse, though it... It hastens, it hastens to the end. The word hastens is, is, is a Hebrew word that means to, to blow, to breathe out, to exhale. So God's saying, look, if I inhaled, you know I'm about to exhale, right? You just can't hold your breath forever. And God says, I am about to exhale something. It's coming your way. Nothing in in, in this world, no demon, no devil can stop it. It hastens to the end. But then he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems slow. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes God seems slow. The biblical writers in the New Testament. Am I there? There we go. The biblical writers in the New Testament talk about the fact that they were living in the last days. That's a lot of days. It's 2010. They were writing that we were in the last days in 65 A.D. Now it's 2010. Guess what, what days we're in? The last days. That's a lot of last days, God. Sometimes I don't understand it. That's a lot of last days. So it says it seems slow. The, the, some translations say, though it tarry, though it linger, though, it, though, though you have to wait for it, though it seems like it's a delay, he says, wait for it. It won't delay. There's an old song that says, he's an on-time God. Yes, he is. He may not come when you want him. Thank you, Curtis. Curtis got on this in the... Last service, but he's always right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. I'm about to sing, y'all. Help me, Jesus. Help the people of God. 
Don't let them have to experience that. But God's on time. What's his promise? I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but chapter 2 goes through God's response. And God lays out, look, I am a righteous God. I am a holy God. This stuff does. I, I, I am going to make this right. The, those who are, who are exhibiting these evil behaviors who are part of the judgment of God upon the people of God because they've not kept covenant with God, I will judge them as well. And God lays it out. Look at verse 14. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, It's coming! It's coming! This injustice you see, this perversion, the law being paralyzed, oh, that won't be forever. There's a time when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. They can't say nothing against me, God says. I'm God. There's nothing they can do to stop my reign. In my plan, often what seems like delay is God's perfect timing, which is an extension of his mercy. I wonder how many people here, just raise your hand if you've been saved in the last 10 years. Raise it high. Wow. How many people have been saved in the last five years? Raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone in the last year? Mm. Now, how many of us in that dark night of, of our own soul, in that struggling place, I've seen it all over Facebook, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus now, wrap this thing up, get me out of here, wrap it up, come back Jesus right now, please. What if God had heard my prayer 11 years ago? He said, okay, I'll wrap it up. Did you see all those hands? What if he wrapped it up five years ago, one year ago? What if he wrapped it up now? And, and, and the, there, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. It's the heart's desire of the believer to consummate that relationship with the Lord but realize in his sovereign goodness, he's waiting that he might have mercy. In verse, in chapter 3, the last part of verse 2, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. So yes, his wrath comes, and it came upon his people, Judah. But it, the prophet says, in wrath, remember mercy, and he does. His memory's good. He's not like me, kind of losing it from time to time. You know, I, I, I have three children, and usually I cannot get their names right. I, my parents did that. I thought there's something wrong with them. They've got a problem. And now I have two daughters and one son. Why am I calling my son Leah? I don't understand. I don't understand. It makes no sense at all. But God remembers. Even in his terrible judgment, 
even in his discipline of his children, he remembers mercy. We can draw hope from that. You know, Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians and writing about all the mess going on in that early church, writing about divisions in the body, writing about believers suing each other, writing about marriage and divorce and, and people taking communion in a foul way and, all, and, and spiritual gifts. He's writing to them about so many things. And he's about to write to them about the resurrection. But in chapter 15, starting at verse 3, he says, but, but I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. And then He talks about all the people that He appeared to after His resurrection. He says, you know what? All of these things, I'm dealing with these dif different issues, but I don't want you to forget something that's central. I'm going to write it on a tablet. I'm going to post it on the Pico building. I'm going to make it plain. Never forget that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. He repeats it in accordance with the scriptures. It was prophesied that this would happen and it has happened. The Savior has come. The ultimate fulfillment of the, pros uh, the, the to, for Habakkuk, the prophet, the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. He is the one who will come and save you out of your sin. He answers with a sure promise. There, there's an old theologian, Herman Bavink. He wrote a book called Christian Dogmatics. Dogmatics is doctrine. And this was a deep brother. He wrote about some really heavy-duty stuff. But he says this. He says, the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. Dogmatics, doctrine, he says, shows us how God, who is all-sufficient in Himself, nevertheless glorifies Himself in creation, which, even when torn apart by sin, is gathered up again in Christ. It describes for us God, always God, from beginning to end. God in His being, God in His creation, God, in, God against sin, God in Christ, God breaking down the wall of resistance through the Holy Spirit and guiding the whole of creation back to the objective He decreed for it in the first place. The glory of His name. You see, He's, he's saying he's a theologian. He is one person that we might say he's up in the seminary in the high tower doing theology. But he says this stuff is real. This stuff gets down into your feet and into every part of your life. You see, we've done a disservice sometimes when we look at theology the wrong way. And if I could draw a picture of it, I, th this, this image came to me this last week. And it's like, how many of y'all know Charlie Brown? Come on, y'all know Charlie Brown. Does Charlie Brown have a big head? Yes, he does. 
Charlie Brown's head is huge. Sometimes theologically, we are like Charlie Brown. We got a great big head filled with theological facts, figures, dates, and doctrines. But how many of y'all know olive oil? Popeye's main squeeze, right? Olive oil weighs about 23 pounds soaking wet. And, and, and the picture I saw was a Charlie Brown head with an olive oil body. So we got all this knowledge. We're puffed up. We're big-headed. But we got nothing to help us carry it out. Our legs are weak. Our hands are weak. Our neck is weak. Our body has no strength in it. There's no muscles there to carry it out. See, see God answers with a sure promise But all this theology that we talk about, all these doctrines that we lift up and we want to know the way of God, we want to know it accurately. We ought to be studying the word too many times. mm, Too many times we are experts at podcasts. And and I, I say that I was listening to some podcasts just the other night. So I'm not saying don't listen to podcasts. There's some great stuff out there. But sometimes we become too expert at the podcast and not expert enough at putting our nose in the book, at studying it for ourselves, at learning how to rightly divide, not just to say, but Pastor E said, or this pastor said, or that pastor said, but can I get in the book myself? Am I learning more and more to rightly divide the word myself? Let's become greater in that. God answers the prophet with a sure promise. And look at the response. Verse 4. He says, behold. This is still the Lord speaking. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. I've read that verse I don't know how many times, probably hundreds of times. Almost every time I've read that verse, I've skipped the first part and gone straight to the second part. I'm not going to do that today. Because he's talking about two people. Two people, not just one, not just the righteous who live by faith. But he's talking about a contrast of two types of people. The first, behold, his soul is puffed up. That word means to be lifted up, to be swelled up. It means to be proud and arrogant. Actually, this particular word, this is the only time it's used in all of Scripture. The word that he uses here for being puffed up. In our vernacular, we might say he is full of his of himself. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. This is the one who hears what the Lord is saying. But the Lord is saying not only is this good, but this is going to delay. It's going to wait a while. You got to wait on me. This is the one who says, you know what? That answer is not really good enough for me. Appreciate you talking to me. But it's like. 
And I've heard, I've not only heard kids say this, I've heard adults. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> you, you can't, I mean, I'll take your advice, I'll listen to what you have to say, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm running this ship, and I've got to make a decision here. You really can't tell me what to do. This one is saying that. His soul is puffed up in him. Spurgeon says, the man who judges God is one whom God will judge and who shall not be able to stand in the day of judgment. We started with pouring out our complaint to God. God's not afraid of that. We pour it all out to Him. We let Him know us ourselves for the mess that we are, for the things that we struggle with. Pour it all out there. But my God, when He speaks... When he gives his word, there are two types of men, two types of, of people. The first one is the one who's puffed up, who says, you know what? I don't have to listen to you. I don't like the answer you gave me. It's not good enough for me. C.S. Lewis said about hell, that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. The Burger King said, I went straight from C.S. Lewis to the Burger King. But y'all know what the Burger King said, have it your way. And ultimately, hell is God saying to the sinner who won't bow their knee, have it your way. Have it your way. Christ is there. The blood of Christ is right there to cover you. But you won't bow. You say, I'm not, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Have it your way. You want separation from God? I will give you separation from God. I will give you eternal separation from the holy, perfect, loving, good God. Tim Keller said, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. I've chosen my identity as one who says, I don't have to do it God's way. And, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal. It's just in the smaller matters. Look, I mean, if being a Christian means I have to go to church on Sunday, okay, I'll do that. If it means occasionally I'll go to a Bible study or a cipher group or something else, you know, that sounds Christian and do some Christian things, I'll do that. But these areas of my life, Lord, I just want you to know, for the record, <laughs> they're off limits. These are mines with an S on the end. This is mines. You can't have that. And ultimately, it's that spirit. Now, we, we all may struggle in various areas. I know that we do because sanctification is a lifelong process. God reveals it. Ah, we've got to repent again. If you thought you repented and came to Christ and that was the end of repentance, we need to talk afterwards. Because repentance is a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decadely, millenniumly. Repentance is ongoing in the life of the believer. It's something that we have to deal with. Mm. But he says... In the last part of verse 4, but the righteous one, 
The righteous shall live by faith. The fourth point is this. The only righteous response is faith. That's the response. When God speaks his word, the response is faith. In, 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 the, NIV, in the, um, the ESV, this isn't the NIV, it's the ESV Bible, there is a footnote that says that the word faith there could also be translated faithfulness. So the righteous shall live by his faith or faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Faithfulness is the manifestation of faith in your hands, in your feet, and in your mouth. Where's your faith? James puts it this way. (laughs) You want to have faith without works? Show me your faith by your works. Your life shows your faith, right? Our life shows our faith. So he says the righteous one shall live by faith or by faithfulness. How we walk this thing out. So the response to God, to the gospel that comes to the prophet, the response to the gospel as God presents it and makes it plain before our eyes is that we believe in faith and walk it out in faithfulness. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. This, the last part of that verse, the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.11, in Romans 1 and verse 17, and then also in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. But I want to read some of the context of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32, the writer says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 34, But you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You had hope in something you couldn't see. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. I love that word. Upeneo is the Greek for that word. You have need of endurance. The word means to remain to stay, to abide, not to recede or to flee, to bear bravely and calmly ill treatment. He says, the writer of Hebrews says to the early church, you have need of endurance. He's saying to this church, this gathering of believers, You have need of endurance. But you not only have need, but look at what God says. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while. And the coming one will come and not delay. (laughs) Written 2,000 years ago. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But look at verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and persevere, 
their souls. The Lord has put his stamp on his people. The Lord has put his spirit in his people. The down payment is already there. The transaction is a guaranteed transaction for those whom God has saved. He will not lose one, Jesus says, out of his hands. We ask the question all the time, can can you lose your salvation? We've been in those arguments and debates and all that stuff. But the better question is this question. Can God lose one that he has destined to save? Because I can lose anything. You can ask my wife and my kids. I, I went around the house two weeks ago looking for my glasses, getting mad before I realized they were on my face. Not the first time, sadly. Could you lose your salvation in a hot second? You could if it was up to you. But God, but God, but God, before the foundation of the world, desired you, called you, and in time, he planted the seed of his Holy Spirit within you. And he says, you're mine. And so the writer says, we're not of those who shrink back. In our destroy, but we're of those who have faith and persevere their souls. There's good news. The righteous response is faith. Two points very quickly as we will close here. I want to get to chapter three. In chapter three, faith, this is the, the next point, faith consummates in extravagant worship. You know faithful people because they worship. They worship like crazy sometimes. My wife, I love her so much, 25 years. But my God, there were times when she was going through, probably because she was married to me. No, no, I'm just kidding. But just going through a hard time, and she would just praise and sing one chorus, one line over and over and over and over again. And and. I came to understand she is putting Jesus before her face and she's not letting go. She's determined that she will praise him, that she will lift up his name. Chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says the prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigenoth. This is a psalm. And so this is laid out for, for, for those to sing it. I don't know the tune and you're probably glad for that right now. But he says... O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He begins his prayer to the Lord. And then look at the beautiful words at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor there be fruit on the vines, the The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. All those words. And and some of us, it's hard for us to get it because, you know, we're not an agricultural society. Most of us aren't farmers, any farmers in the house. Farmers in the house. 
Where's Darius? Darius from Alabama, so he qualifies as a farmer. <laughs> I'm from Alabama too. But but we're not we're we're not farmers, so you know, okay, there's no fig tree blossoms. I don't have fig newtons that often anyway. Not not a big deal. No fruit on the vines, okay, that's grapes. I'll eat an orange instead. You know, we kind of look at these things and we say, well, that's all right, that's all good. But but let me give you the modern contemporary translation. Though the acme is shut down, and though the doors of the shop right are closed, though the fresh grocer is no more and Trader Joe has lost his way, though there's no more whole foods, and some of you are saying, okay, that's all right. I still got, and Mickey D's is burnt to the ground. <laughs> though there's no Qdoba, and now this one's going to hurt. And though the corner store is gone forever. <laughs> ah, Lord God. <laughs> Yet will I praise thee. See, and, and I'm making light of it, but what he's saying is, see, we don't know what famine is like. I remember a couple years ago there was, they talked about drought in the United States and particularly in the southern states. My father lives in Georgia. I went down to Georgia and they talked about how terrible this drought is and the water levels were the lowest they had been in many, many years, decades in fact. And it was a crisis. And then I went to the sink and turned on the spigot and there was water. I went to the bathroom, and I'll just say when I flushed, it went down, all right? We, we talk about famine. We talk about drought. We talk about all this, but, but we don't really know what that's like. But the prophet does, <laughs> and the prophet has seen what happens when the land is ravaged by drought and ravaged by war and ravaged by evil invaders and ravaged in every way, and he says, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Mm. Faith cons consummates in extravagant worship. And Habakkuk will live the rest of his life and will die and never see the promise fulfilled in his eyes. He only sees it in the spirit. He sees it by faith. He sees it by hearing the word of the Lord. But he never sees it manifested when he dies and I don't know there's not much history on Habakkuk the person we don't know when he died but Babylon came in in 586 BC and burnt the temple of God to the ground killed many who were in Jerusalem and Judea took many others away to Babylon and foreign lands into captivity and they remained in captivity for 70 years after that Habakkuk is long dead and gone before even any vestige of that promise is fulfilled. And yet he says, yet will I praise thee. My question to myself and to you is, can you revel? Can you glory in the eternal purpose of God, even when it has no prospect of positively changing your current life circumstance for the better? Can, can you revel in God? Can you glory in God even when you're not going to feel it, see it, touch it, taste it, experience it for yourself in the here and in the now? 
Can we glory in the truth that God's word is marching on, that Jesus Christ is coming again, and that he will gather up all who belong to him and consummate a brand new creation where he'll be glorified. Mm. The The last point is this. God gives sure footing to those who trust in him. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. Yahweh Adonai is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. I like some of the old translation, like hind's feet. Ah, He makes me tread on high places. He gives me footing. He gives me the ability. If you've ever seen a mountain goat, you watch National Geographic or whatever those channels are. I don't have cable, so I don't even know those channels anymore. But you watch those shows and you see this animal, this kind of crazy looking animal on, on the top of some mountain. And it's jumping from place to place, running up places where if I even thought of that and there's a steep embankment perhaps hundreds or thousands of feet to fall, and yet they move with confidence from one place to another. God says, he makes my feet like hinds feet. I can climb on the mountains. I can go in the difficult place, in in the steep place, and I have confidence that I will not fall. Not because of how smart I am, not because of what school I went to, not because of what degrees I have, not because of how much money is in the bank. I know I will not fall because he makes my feet stick. God gives his people sticky feet. You won't fall. You won't fall. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the full armor of God. I love that section of scripture. Put on the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, all these wonderful implements of the full armor of God. And we could, you know, do a long study on each and every one of them. But one that would be easy to overlook, perhaps, is in verse 15. He says, and the sh- and, the- and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's something that God says, I've got for your feet because I want you to be in a place where you're steady, where you won't be moved. In in Psalm 73 that I I talked about earlier with with David going through my feet, almost slipped at the beginning of that psalm towards the middle, he says in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them, speaking of those who will not honor God, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. No matter how good it looks right now, the end is ruin. You set them in slippery places. But God gives us feet like hinds feet. that can climb, that can stand, that will not slip that will not fall because God has decreed it. From chaos to confidence. I wonder, there may be some in this room right now 
who feel like my life right now is chaos. I encourage you. And if that's not you today, it will probably be you soon. I encourage you, take that to God. Lay it out. Don't pretty it up. Don't make it smell good because it stinks. Let it smell like it smells. Put it out to God. To God. Bring it to the right place. The only one who can change it. Bring it to him. Wait to hear from the God of your salvation. Get your nose in the book and see what Jesus Christ has done and what he's promised. And he will give you sure footing in every slippery place. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you.